Basic Income Podcast. I'm Owen Poindexter. And I'm Jim Pugh. Something that has come up oftentimes on this podcast, and really in any sort of debate around basic income in the current day, is questions around automation. Will there be jobs in the future? What sort of jobs will there be? You have some very smart people with very, very different takes on this. So for this episode, we thought it'd be interesting in trying to predict what the future might look like to talk to someone who's actually looked at the past and glean some lessons around that from what we might expect. So I got to speak with Carlota Perez, who has really done a fascinating analysis of the cycles that we go through in technology and the economy that you'll hear more about in a moment. She is a professor of technology and development at the Institute for Innovation and Public Purpose at the University College of London. So here's my conversation with Carlota Perez. Carlota Perez, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. So you chart economic history in terms of technological revolutions, such as the Industrial Revolution and the creation of the automobile. And each technological revolution starts up a financial cycle that involves a flood of capital, new inventions and infrastructure, the creation of financial bubbles, some associated destabilization, and then a settling down period in which the technology becomes more incorporated into the markets and the world. So how would you characterize our current moment in terms of technology and finance? Okay, well, the first thing is that uh, technological revolutions, when they begin, actually need the help of finance to be able to, to break with the old paradigm, with the old technologies. So uh, you can have 20 or 30 years of very strong financial support of the new technologies. And at the same time, very bad social situation because you're breaking up the old industries, you're doing what Schumpeter called creative destruction. So then you have unemployment, technological unemployment, in this case, global, you know, globalization unemployment also. And at the same time, inequality, because the early period, people are getting millions, even if they don't deserve it, because they are using much more advanced technologies and destroying the old technologies. So that period, which ends in bubbles, as you say, and, and big collapses, we have behind. In fact, we have had two collapses this time. This is not the first time that we have more. Uh, for the revolution of the automobile, we only had the crash of 29, which was really big. And then we had the 1930s. That's what I call the turning point. Actually, it's not a point. It was 13 years that time. And now, since 2008, we are in an equivalent period to the 1930s. There are many signs of this being uh, the turning point. Um, the fact that we have a lot of populist leaders and a lot of anger, because, of course, we have inequality, we have unemployment. People are resentful, and they're right to be resentful because they've had it quite bad. But what happens in turning points is that everything is revealed. You know, things that looked like prosperity, in fact, were hiding all this loss of jobs and loss of regions deteriorating, all these terrible things that happen with every technological revolution are revealed in this period, which I call the turning point, which can be long, as I said. Some other times in other revolutions, it's only lasted like two years. But the last one and this one have been quite long since 2008. We're already 11 years into what I call the turning point. But after the turning point, or get to get out of the turning point, what we need is state intervention to give direction to this technological revolution, which is there and is capable of transforming the economy, increasing productivity, increasing well-being, only if it is well uh, directed, if 
a set of policies can transform it in such a way that you actually get a positive sum game between business and society, like we did in the post-war boom, uh, when salaries were high, full employment for everybody for a long time, home ownership, I mean, all sorts of things that made life much better for everybody at the same time as we had pros prosperity among business firms that were innovating and growing successfully. So those are the golden ages. So each revolution goes through three periods, the installation period, finance and, and inequality and unemployment, then the turning point when you see everything, but at the same time you have this enormous technological potential, and then deployment, which is the golden age, which is the best year. So, so each technological revolution goes through uh, difficult moments, and then it can bring the best, but only if the state knows what to do and if the state does the right thing. If it doesn't, we could actually continue in this mess without ever getting out of it. Yeah, that's the, the next thing I wanted to ask you is you see some various political instincts around this moment where some people are trying to call, claw back a previous generation. Other people are saying, let's just move forward and everyone will just figure it out or they won't and, and life will move on. How should we think about how to regulate or manage this moment and move past this turning point? The first thing we need to do is to understand the current technological revolution and how it differs from the previous one. The previous technological revolution, starting with Ford's Model T for the automobile, where we change from, from trains and bicycles and, and horse carriages and so on, and trams to the automobile and, and trucks and so on, and airplanes, uh, that huge change in transport came accompanied with mass production, cheap oil for universal electricity, the whole range of plastics and the whole range of electrical appliances and and all those new types of transport that made a whole revolution which was also wasteful i mean this the whole all the problems we have now with the environment were very much associated with the way in which we grew it was very it was very successful but it was also very destructive. We only now realize it, of course. At the time, I, I was quite alive when we learned to to have a, the wonderful waste society. You know, the idea of throwing things out. We never understood what you know the problems we would create for the future. But anyway, that particular revolution is now over. It is really obsolete, and we've got to get rid of that way of living. So we now have to solve not only the unemployment problem that's brought by every revolution, the inequality problem that's brought by every revolution, but a particular set, a particular set of problems that was brought by the previous specific revolution, which has to do with the environment. And of course, we also have the problem of underdevelopment, which is another, which is a problem that affects uh, the advanced countries among other things, because companies are going to underdeveloped countries to look for lower for lower cost labor, and therefore they're creating unemployment in the advanced world. So, so we have a set of problems created both by the old revolution, the one that's obsolete but still around, and the and by the fact that every revolution creates 
social problems and then somehow society has to solve them and the state is the representative that sets the policies to do that. So yeah, that's that's you know quite a lot to try and solve all, all at once. What problems do you see a basic income solving with today's economy and today's society? Okay, let's begin by looking at the way jobs are created in this new economy. You know, the, the mass production had the advantage of creating jobs for life. So we saw those jobs for life as something that if you were unemployed, you were only unemployed for a few months. And therefore, the welfare state could just cover for those few months. Then we didn't live that long. So there was also the pensions that was from savings and so on from the time you worked. So the welfare state was quite a quite a nice, secure system, which in terms of um, unemployment insurance did something good for the workers and something good for companies. Imagine if we didn't have unemployment insurance, what would happen to all the uh, automobiles bought on credit installment buying of every everything that you had in your house from the refrigerator to the washing machine, the house itself, the mortgage, you had to continue paying. So if you didn't have a job for five or six months or three months even, uh, you'd have to return the key and, you know, <laughs> it would have been terrible for, for the company. So it was good for both. It was a very smart solution to have unemployment insurance then. And the same thing with pensions. You know, people could spend all their income because they were guaranteed that they would have a decent income at the end of their lives. Well, we are in a very different society now. We now have the gig economy. We have a lot of self-employed people and growing. We have zero hours contracts. And that cannot be eliminated. You know, you can't say... Uh, we're going to turn the gig economy into permanent contracts. We're going to force Uber to pay. That's ridiculous. We've got to recognize that we are in a different society. And what we have to do is to find a way to save the gig economy people and the zero hours contracts people and the self-employed people who cannot declare I'm unemployed this month because I don't have a contract. I don't have any jobs. I don't have any, you know, if you're working on your own, you could spend three months without earning a penny. So the whole the whole situation the whole job situation has changed completely so we have to change the safety net we have to change the welfare state and that is one of the things that basic income will solve the other thing it will solve is the fact that we now need skills to be acquired lifelong we need lifelong education, we need changes in skills, and we also need the possibility of having portfolio careers or moving from one country, from one region of the country to another. So all those movements and all those changes and the acquisition of skills require a cushion, require a sort of, secu of social security net that will allow people to fit with the new conditions. And those those problems are really big and they're really new because uh, in the mass production society, you acquired skills for life. You graduated of something or you, you were trained in one thing. And that meant that for your whole life, you're going to be in that area. That was your thing. 
But now we are in the information society and it's moving very fast and people need to be able to change. And the third thing that's very important is that there is a lot of unpaid work that's being done in this new sort of paradigm. And that is things like Linux and, you know, Wikipedia and so on. There are many, many things that people do without a salary. It's like voluntary work, but that's limited. People can only do it at night or over the weekend. And, and some of those things are quite important. And some of those, those things people would like to do, including some caring and all sorts of things. So if people had a cushion, if people could have a basic income, we could actually make it much easier, make it much easier to take jobs, to change jobs, to, to take those uh, temporary jobs to be a self-employed person, all those things become easier. And, and it's much more fluid for society. The whole, you know, it's, it's really changing your mental picture of what jobs are. In fact, we have to call it work. We shouldn't call it jobs anymore. Some will be jobs in the sense that you're permanently there, but others will be just work. And you can do work with, you know, with basic income and a little bit of self-employment here or there, or you know, you can be free to do all those things, but you have a cushion. You're guaranteed. You're not at risk of not having enough to eat or to transport yourself or to have some form of shelter or something. This is like a, a citizen insurance policy to have this small, not so small. It has. We've got to make it reasonably safe, a, a true cushion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, often people throw out the figure of $1,000 per month per person. Is that around where you're At thinking? Least, I would say, I would say that would be, that would be a very good thing. And I would say also for, for children and for old people, for everybody, the only problem is we might be encouraging people to have children just to have more money. And I don't know how to solve that problem. <laughs> That's one of the problems that I see with this. But basically, yes, around $1,000 would be the minimum that I would consider a reasonable cushion. Otherwise, you know, if you give less than that, then you're not really giving a cushion. And much more than that could actually be discouraging. You know, there is, there is a sort of threshold that, that would make it a good cushion. And beyond that, maybe it would make it too much. So it's, but too little is useless. Uh -huh. So that, that does address a lot of the, the issues that you brought up. Do you see UBI as a standalone policy or should there be other things as well to kind of address our, our moment as part of the package? Oh, of course, we need a huge package. I mean, just think of the package that brought the golden age before. Okay, so what did the other one have? We already mentioned unemployment insurance and pensions but it had many other things. It had a backup almost insurance for the banks to lend to people uh, for, for mortgages. You know, when the whole idea of home ownership, even for workers, began, you were getting cheap houses in cheap land. That's what suburbanization was about. That was one of the big directions that the technology took. So government put a whole lot of things to make it easy for people to build houses. So that meant providing the land, providing the electricity, providing the the water, the you know, all the all the networks of services, sewers, and so on. 
And then it was cheap land, cheap uh, housing, because it couldn't be mass produced and so on, but also government backing on the mortgages. That's a big thing. Government was actually giving a guarantee. Then when the veterans came back, all the veterans got all sorts of fantastic conditions from government to to be able to get um, to buy houses. And it also gave them the possibility of going to college, also government funded. So you had people educated, you know, masses of people being educated on government on taxes. It was a time when taxes were also paying for all the government spending in the Cold War, which was enormous. And that was, of course, a lot of jobs and a lot of um, a lot of innovation pulled or pushed by the government things. The government also became a big innovator in all sorts of things. I mean, we wouldn't have the Internet if it weren't for government. All the things that are part of this revolution, beginning with the internet itself, but also have to do with all the effort made by government to promote innovation and so on. So many, many things have to happen. And around basic income in terms of social things, of course, we cannot we cannot say that basic income is going to take away uh, the special things that are given, for instance, for people who cannot work, who are invalid, who are ill for one reason or another. I mean, there are all sorts of other things that cannot be replaced. The only thing that basic income has to replace is unemployment insurance and pensions and child benefit if we if we do it right through. So those three things, but of course we need we need a decent health service. And in the US it's it's amazing. From Europe, you know, you look at the US and you think they're mad. How how could a society not have a universal health service for everybody? How could it be the most advanced society in the world not to have it? So of course, you know, you're not expecting people to pay their health from basic income. It would be pretty ridiculous considering what health costs now. So of course it has to be the whole thing. But in particular particular, there is the question of the environment, because every technological revolution has a whole range of possibilities in terms of in which direction to develop. And what happens is that when the state uh, provides a direction through a set of policies that make it more logical to invest in certain in certain paths and in certain areas, because synergies are created and therefore it becomes more profitable to invest in certain ways, then you get the real golden ages. So uh, what you had in the in the previous one was to have two directions: suburbanization, which meant home ownership for everybody, including blue-collar workers, which which seemed absurd in the 1930s. I mean, to say that. A factory worker was going to own a house and a car, and it just didn't make any sense. It was completely out of the question. And then it became normal. And now we think it's normal, but it wasn't. And and it isn't necessarily unless society is organized in such a way. But it was suburbanization on the one hand and um, the Cold War on the other. So there were two things that the state did, that government did, with a whole set of policies associated with that, including things like, for instance, subsidizing farmers, 
because if you subsidize farmers, you can have cheaper food so that people can then buy refrigerators instead of, you know, and, and houses and so on instead of paying too much for food. So you had cheaper food, but you also had the mechanization of agriculture uh, because farmers could afford the machines too. So, and, and all the green revolution, you know, all the pesticides and all the herbicides and all these things, which of course are a problem now, but looked like the great solution then. So it's a big thing. You know, government has to have a whole set of policies. It's a big package that will cover a direction that will uh, give a cushion for security that will create jobs. If government today were to adopt a policy of what I've called smart green growth, where you're promoting everything that has to do with environmentally friendly technologies, which means circular economy. It means uh, changing from the, the types of materials that we're using now from plastics and all these things to bioplastics or to materials that are much more environmentally friendly, that are biodegradable, etc. That whole change means enormous amounts of innovation, enormous amounts of investment and lots of new jobs. At the same time, as you're also conserving energy, of course, changing the whole energy mix towards renewables, you also have all the jobs that would be associated with a maintenance society. You would have policies that would promote long-term durability of products that are called durable, but of course are not durable. You know, all durable products last a few years only, but, you know, when I was young, they used to last 50 years, so why why don't they now? Well, because there is a policy of planned obsolescence. But if there is a policy that forces companies to take back their uh, old, their useless uh, refrigerators and their useless everything, whatever, that they have to respond, the, the manufacturers have to respond for the discarded objects, then we could have a whole maintenance and um, a durable rental economy. Instead of buying the things, we could rent it. In fact, it's very funny because people say, oh, rent. No, it doesn't make much sense, but everybody's renting because if you're paying by installment, if you're paying with a credit you know, with credit, you're actually renting until you finally own the thing. And once you own it, it'll last one year and then it's broken down and you have to start with credit all over again. So, in fact, you are renting. But if you could do it like you do in Amazon with the product, you know, knowing what maybe you have a chip on every product so that you will know what the history of the product is and then some will be more expensive and some not and companies will compete in the in the qualities of the products and technology actually use the newest technologies rather than making it breakable and you know so so the whole the whole of the we could change the nature of the durable goods industries completely and of course if they are if we were to flip taxes instead of taxing uh, you know, sales tax or VAT, as we do in Europe, which is the value added, which means actually a tax on salaries and profits, we could tax materials. If we were to tax only material and energy content and transport, we could reduce all those things, but we could also promote uh, local production of certain things with 3D printing or 
agriculture around the cities. I mean, there could be so much innovation, so many new things, a completely different way of living, which is what actually creates the new jobs to have a to have now a way of living based not on mainly the possession of goods, but on services, care, um, exercise, health, um, education, all sorts of enjoyment, communication, networks, um, community living, all sorts of things that have to do with other forms of, which are not just being a couch potato. You know, it's a completely different way of thinking, but basically we would reduce the material content content of GDP, we would reduce the material content of lifestyles, and we would then be able to have a better planet, but especially we would have lots of jobs. Just imagine if we had a maintenance industry for every single electrical appliance and for and for automobiles and so on, a huge maintenance industry and installation industry, we could probably re-employ almost every worker that lost his job. Uh, in the manufacturing industries that went away. If we tax transport, we would change the economics of things from China and local, you know. So we would actually promote um, other ways, you know, local production of certain things, but especially of food around the cities. You know, we could have the new uh, hydroponic things, you know, uh, completely different. There are so many experiments that are very impressive in Europe, we have seen a lot. So, and and in Canada, and I, I'm sure in the States too that I'm not fully aware, but all those things are the changes that have to happen and they have to be promoted by government, either local governments or national government or whatever, by changing, especially changing the tax system. And that's the other essential part of the package. It is changing the tax system so that long-term investment is more profitable than short term. I mean, it should be that if anything that any capital gains that you make within 24 hours uh, should be taxed 95%. You know that in the first years, in the 1950s with the Eisenhower government, the top rate of tax, the top rate of income tax was 92% for the whole time. So, you know, it's not, it's not an impossible thing to tax very highly something that you are trying to, you know, if you need to fund society. So you've, you've detailed this financial cycle. And one thing that always comes up around basic income is how are you going to pay for it? That's often the first question you get. Is there some way you think we could leverage this technological financial cycle to help fund the basic income? Definitely. I think there are several things that have to do with the technology. One is how to do it. It is so much simpler. I mean, compared to what it was to have the old safety net, you know, how to define with lots of bureaucracy, you know, how many people you have to employ in order to define if somebody's unemployed or isn't, and if they need this, and if they need, you know, all that apparatus, all that bureaucracy gone. What you do, everybody has to have a a bank account, and that bank account both receives the basic income and serves to to pay back the basic income to the government by some form of direct debit once you, you know, because the whole idea with basic income should be that you get your basic income, then you can still work for, say, two more basic income 
you know, two more amounts equivalent to basic income. Then you start paying taxes as you earn more. And as you go beyond a certain, so I say, say four or five, after five basic incomes, you you already paid back in full. So you end up with four. So the whole thing would be from there on, all millionaires and people who earn a lot, you know, they just give it back practically immediately. So what you need is for everybody to have the basic income account. And then you get your money in the ATM and then you you send your money back when you're paying your taxes. So the whole thing could be done technologically in a very, very simple way. So first of all, it's a low cost system once you have everybody in there. Then the other thing is that quantitative easing was was done for the banks. As much as 10% of GDP was given to the banks. So the, it's perfectly possible to get 10% of GDP to do the first round of basic income. And then once that year is over, you get back all the money that's not necessary. So they say only 25% of the population really needed the full basic income, if as much, could be 20. I don't know. We'd have to find out how many people are so poor that they don't earn that much. So you only really need, even if you give it to absolutely everybody, the amount of money that has to be put there by taxes every year is only the, you know, the amount that's needed by people who really do not earn enough. So that can be done automatically. That's truly easy to do with computers and communicating the banks and so on. Then we should be able to have a, um, a financial transactions tax. It's obvious, you know, we say, say if you move more than $5,000 in any direction, you pay a certain amount. We'd have to say 1%, 2% at most, you know, a small amount, 1% maybe. And with that, you get an enormous amount of money and it really you know, if you say 1% and you have every five, uh, $5,000, $50 in 5000 you can hardly feel it. And that would be billions because of all that movement of money. So financial transactions have to do with the people who have gotten the most enormous unfair share of wealth because they're not, you know, they make millions on somebody else's innovations. The whole financial world has been living off the rest of society. And the whole, fin you know, the, the growth of the stock market is almost like asset inflation. So people who have assets get richer and richer and people who have no assets get poorer and poorer. So if you tax, somehow you tax assets and one of the ways of taxing it is when you move them around. Uh, when you move money around related to those assets, then you can get a lot of money from that. Of course, the whole problem, the whole problem is to tax properly. But to tax properly, we now have different sorts of technologies that can be used so that it's no longer so complicated. Even the whole complication of taxes has to be simplified. It's mad the way it is. And that's part of the things we need to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, that's that's um, that's great. I mean, it's you know, it's it's good to know that there, there is a way to kind of connect all these systems into something cohesive. We could if we could get the political will to do so. Uh, well, those are all the questions I had for you. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Well, I'd like to add two things. One is that we have to understand that in order 
to have capitalism be legitimate, it needs to be good for everybody. The whole idea, the whole justification of capitalism is that you have wealth that comes from personal greed, which is okay. So you're greedy. You want to get lots of money. You can get lots of money as long as you also benefit society. If it's only for you, then it's not so legitimate. So the first thing we need to understand is that this whole this whole discussion has to be in that context. The second thing that needs to be understood, I think, is that those people who say that nobody should get money for nothing should also fight a law against inheritance because people who inherit get something for nothing. So what's so wrong about that? Society has a general wealth that has been accumulated. And what it does when it decides to provide a basic income is like an inheritance tax, an inheritance to everybody for all the people who have created wealth before. This this business of being against this money for nothing, you know, because people don't deserve it because they don't work and so on, then they should be, you know, it reminds me of people who are against abortion, but they're not against war. So you cannot kill you know, as they think, they kill you, killing a baby which hasn't even been born, but it's okay to kill somebody who has children and who has a wife and who has a mother and who has brothers and, you know, people who will cry for them. That's okay because that's war. But, you know, that illogic thing, we've got to, to come to a point where we can be consistent. That was Owen speaking with Dr. Carlota Perez on the Basic Income Podcast. So I thought it was really interesting how Dr. Perez's studies here really give us a different perspective on automation. It's no longer a question of will there be jobs or won't there. Her point is that inequality is really inherent to the creative destruction at, at these big turning points we face in society. So it, we don't even actually, it, it's irrelevant what, how many and what sort of jobs there will be if we actually want to make sure that we're not leaving a lot of people in a really bad situation, it is going to require state intervention to direct this process. Yeah, I really go back and forth on automation because it's clearly a big issue. It's clearly going to be a big part of the future. And I think you can make a good case that it's part of our present right now. And at the same time, it gets you tangled up in these debates of, you know, we've been through this before, or are the robots really coming? I'm kind of skeptical that it's going to be as big a deal as everyone says it is. And when you see it more in terms of this technological cycle that that we're in, and I, I think she makes a really nice case for it, then, yeah, it, it's not, you, you kind of get to sidestep that debate and say, look, there clearly has been a technological revolution of the digital age, I'll, I'll call it for shorthand, and it's clearly going to leave people behind because people don't have the skills for it. Um, and, and it's made some people fabulously rich without doing anything to lift up everyone else. And so when you think more about how should our economy be designed so that when we have these big booms, when there are some people getting hugely rich and some people getting left behind, how can we make that a good thing or at least a neutral thing for everyone? Right. And there certainly can be different ideas on this, and, and we should be having a robust debate. But yeah, it does seem like far too often we get start we get stuck in this, will there be jobs, won't there be jobs? And that's that's really where the conversation and the argument stays, as opposed to having these more productive explorations as to, all right, what are the different scenarios here? What are the types of policies that, that really 
will support people in these situations. And I, th I thought one that came up that was particularly interesting was the point about lifelong education, which I, I think you'd be hard pressed to find many people who are thinking seriously about this who wouldn't agree that is has become and is becoming a much more important area of focus because that, I mean, I don't hear anyone serious arguing that we are going to be able to stick to a model where you learn your trade when you're young and you're like late teens, early 20s, and then you go do it for the rest of your life. Everyone seems to recognize that things are changing more quickly now. And it is going to be important to have ways for people to be able to learn throughout their lives. And so I think that you have different ideas for how to do that. But I think that that's actually on its own a very compelling argument for basic income because to be able to do that effectively, you need to include flexibility. You can't have a one-size-fits-all approach because different people are going to be in very different spaces. They're going to have different needs. They're going to have different areas they want to go into. And so that's, I think, a very strong reason why having this baseline underlying support that's always going to be there and, and gives you that flexibility uh, really will make that whole process much, much easier for people to do. Yeah, absolutely. Inherent in the idea of lifelong education is the ability to take time to educate yourself. And if you're, say, a 35-year-old truck driver and you're starting to recognize that you're probably not going to be employable in your current profession, you know, you've probably got a good 10 years, I'd say, but who knows after that. Um, yeah, I bet you'd love to take off six months to learn to code, but what if that's just not an option for you? So yeah, the ability to, the idea of having a basic income, and I'd throw in universal health care as well, um, gives you that cushion to, to kind of take time off and rescale. Another direction my mind went in listening to Carlota is that introducing something as big as basic income gives you the opportunity to express values that might not be in the current economy and in the current structure of the economy through taxation. So a carbon tax, I think, is something that would, would be very, very beneficial in the long term. Uh, same with high-frequency training. Um, she spoke a lot about planned obsolescence, which isn't something I think about too often until one of my devices breaks when it feels like it, it shouldn't have yet. Uh, but, but having an economy that rewards long-term value, um, these are options you have when you are introducing new taxes. And another nice thing about basic income is you can introduce new taxes and have them not be regressive, have, it, have them not you know, be an even greater burden on poor and middle class people. Yeah, I feel like that's such a more productive way to think about taxation than yeah, currently have I mean, today. Yeah. Because, again, it's another one. I feel like all the nuance has gone out of it. It's either I'm pro-tax, I'm anti-tax. Uh, and I think who the calls wealthy, themselves pro-tax these days? Right, well, that's true. It's like I'm, I'm pro-tax on the wealthy or I'm anti-tax. Right, right. seems to be really the debate. But I think that saying, like, look, taxes are actually a tool. It's not just a source of revenue. It's a way of, as you say signaling and like motivating good behavior. And I, th I think if we can come to that place, suddenly, not only does this give us a lot more levers for directing how things go, but then suddenly, we, yeah, we do have more revenue to, to be able to do certain things with. And so, yeah, I, I think that's a really, it seems like a really productive take to, to have on, on that whole space. And yeah, just off of that, I really liked her her mind frame of making capitalism work for everyone. Like, it, it would be awesome if you heard about 
some tech CEO making a billion dollars and everyone was happy because that means more tax dollars are going into your basic income or our funding and whatever social services we need. And right now you feel such, there's such public animus toward rich people. And that takes a lot of different forms depending on your political affiliations and your ideas about the world. But it, it just feels like like it's us against them in a lot of ways. And then that's too bad because they got rich for a reason. And some of those reasons aren't great, but a lot of them are because they're adding to our GDP and producing for the economy. And that should be a cause for celebration, but you can understand why it's so often the exact opposite. Right, and that takes us back to kind of the inherent paradox around fears around automation, which is in a well-designed society, automation should be a great thing. Exactly. If we can do more with less, that should be a win for everyone. But because of the way that we have things set up right now, that's not what people expect to have happen. And so this is why, yeah, people people get so terrified and, and anxious about where this will all go. That'll do it for this episode of the Basic Income Podcast. Thank you to our producer, Eric Davidson. Please rate us and review us on wherever you are listening to this podcast. And please subscribe and tell your friends. Uh, we're always looking to bring more folks into this conversation. Talk to you next week. Mm-hmm.